Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open today to Revelation chapter 7. I mentioned yesterday that chapter 7 represents an interlude between the 6th and 7th seal. Uh, the perspective shifts to heaven. There's a pause, as it were, where final judgments are held back until the full tally of God's people can be calculated. So let's read the first three verses, starting at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, one of the things that you'll notice is, is that all through the book of Revelation, which again, remember, covers that time period between the first and second coming of Christ, one of the major themes is the division of all the people of the earth into two camps. So you've got the camp of the lamb and the camp of the beast. You've got the, the camp of Jerusalem and you've got the camp of Babylon. You've got the bride, you've got the whore. The, you're, all the peoples are being divided and they're being branded as it were. And so, you know, there's all this silliness and nonsense about the mark of the beast. And of course, very little conversation about the mark of God. Just as surely as there is a mark of the beast, there is a mark of the lamb. And, and, and that's what we're talking about here. And the imagery for all of this marking comes from Ezekiel chapter 9. I mentioned right at the start, you cannot understand Revelation uh, un unless you're committed to reading and rereading the Old Testament. Book of Revelation is like, an art gallery where all the visions, all the paintings have been painted in colors lifted from Old Testament canvases. You cannot make sense of this book unless you're familiar with the Old Testament. And, and if you don't do your homework and if you don't read the Old Testament, you're likely to, to go off on all kinds of bunny trails and, and distractions. And, and so it is here. Let me, let me read to you the background for this story, Ezekiel 9, 1 to 6. And right away, this is going to jump out at you. Okay, Ezekiel 9, 1 to 6, God is about to judge uh, the people of, of Jerusalem. But before he does, he sends out an angel, a marking angel, to mark the true people of God so that they don't get caught up in this work of judgment. All right, so listen, Ezekiel 9, 1 to 6. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. So we're going to have some judgment. Verse 2, And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike 
your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. If you can't see the parallels between that passage and this passage, you're not paying attention. Just before a season of severe judgment, the true people of God are marked off for mercy, marked off for exemption, as it were. They're counted carefully so as not to share in the judgment that is to come. Now, it's interesting. It's extraordinarily interesting to note the characteristics of the true believers. They are those who mourn over the abominations committed in their midst. They're the people who still have the decency to know sin and to feel shame. You know, be very wary of these Christians who seem to call good what the Bible calls shameful, right? The characteristic of a real believer is that you still know what you should be ashamed of and that you mourn over sin. Remember Jesus in the Beatitudes said, blessed are those who mourn? Yeah, blessed are those who mourn. They are exempt from the judgment that is about to fall. That's the background. All right, now let's read uh, verses 4 to 8. Let's see who receives the mark. And I heard the number of the sealed, those who received the mark. Those who received the mark is my comment. Okay, 144,000, the text goes on to say, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it lists them. Verse 5, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now that's a very stylistic list. It is like no other listing of the 12 tribes in all the Bible. For one thing, the tribe of Dan is completely omitted. For another thing, uh, many Bible readers are familiar with the fact that Joseph is given a double portion, as it were. And so there are two tribal allotments, Manasseh and Ephraim, for the one tribe of Joseph. But together, they're, they're sometimes referred to as the half-tribes. But together, they're only one tribe. Well, here Joseph is listed, but then so is Manasseh, as though Manasseh has taken the place of Dan. And, and so what's, what's the point? What's the point of this number, 144,000? Well, as you probably know, numbers are often symbolic, almost exclusively symbolic in apocalyptic literature. Um, and, and so 144,000 is a pretty obvious symbol, isn't it? It, it is 12 times 12 times 1,000, or it is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant communities. It, it is the full people of God. It is all the people of God from both covenant dispensations. That, that's what's being said here. And that's what, exactly what you would expect at this point in the story. We are very near to the end of the story. This is the interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. Meaning, we are very near now to the right-hand frame in this picture of the entire time period between the first coming and the second coming of God. And as you keep reading through Revelation, you discover that very close to the end, no one's getting saved anymore. Meaning, the whole people of God are now gathered. And this is what we're looking at right here. This is the whole gathered people of God in heaven now, old covenant and new. Twelve, twelve apostles, twelve disciples, right? Twelve patriarchs. This is... Old Covenant and New Covenant, people of God in their fullness. Now, but what about Dan? Why isn't Dan there? So here's this last 
little clause I'd put on that sentence. This is the whole people of God, old covenant and new, excluding the fatally compromised, excluding the culpably, culpably idolatrous. If you're an Old Testament reader, you know that the tribe of Dan became synonymous with idolatry. Uh, after the split between the northern tribe and the southern tribe, the king of the north didn't want all of his people going down to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem uh, because he worried that, obviously, if they're going down to the southern kingdom to worship, that's going to legitimize the southern king. And so he set up two uh, centers for uh, idol worship, one in, and one of them was in Dan. And he said to the people, here is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And he set up golden calves, right? So he wasn't saying worship a different God. He said, here is Yahweh. This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. But he said, now worship this golden calf. So what he introduced is fatally flawed, fatally mixed, fatally paganized Yahweh worship, right? This is, this is culpable idolatry, people who ought to know better, right? People who have Bibles that have the second commandment in them. This is fatally mixed, fatally flawed idolatrous people. They are excluded. They are explicitly not counted among those who are spared from judgment. All right, let's read verses 9 to 12. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, most commentators understand this great multitude to be just another way of speaking about the 144,000. This is two ways of saying the same thing. This is, again, the whole people of God. But here, a little bit of information is shared that's new. Remember, I told you the whole point of progressive parallelism is, yes, we're, we're coming back around on the same uh, content again and again, but each time something new is added. Okay, here's what's new. This great multitude, this, this fullness of God's people includes people from every nation, tribe, and tongue on planet Earth. That's marvelous and necessary, too, I suppose, because if your first bit of symbol makes use of the 12 tribes of Israel, it might be tempting to think that the people of God are exclusively Jewish, which, of course, we know can't be true, given the, the flow of the New Testament. And so this complementary bit of imagery reminds us that we're talking about a fullness here that is beyond Jewish, that in fact encompasses people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so I think that's, that's how we're to see it. I, every time I read this passage, I'm reminded of David Platt's sermon at T4G in 2012. There, I have a, there are a handful of sermons that stick in my brain. Most, most of them just kind of go into your body like, or into your mind like breakfast goes into your body. I mean, you, you can't remember much about it a few days later, but it's, it's helping you in some way. But then there are a few that just stick out. And there's, I have about a handful of those sermons. And David Platt's sermon in 2012 at T4G called Divine Sovereignty, the Fuel of Death-Defying Missions is one of those sermons. You can, you can YouTube that and you should. 
he, he talked about this. He said, this passage is the passage that explains why our grandparents got into ships and packed their belongings into coffins and took a six-month journey to places like India and Rangoon to share the gospel, knowing that they would almost certainly not return. Why do they do it? Why, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm recording this just north of Toronto, and, and in Toronto, uh, there are stories of, of Hudson Taylor preaching in churches in Toronto and men marching out of the churches down to the docks <laughs> to board ships for mission in places like China. There, there are stories of that. What in the world made people do that? And it was this passage that God declared ahead of time the absolute certainty that the full people of God that would come out of this tribulation between the two comings of Christ would include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including China, India, Rangoon, and beyond. So it made sense to them. It made sense to our grandparents. Let me read to you verses 13 to 17, right to the end. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the end for God's people, right? There's more, there's more to the story for the unsaved on the earth, but this is the end for God's people. This is what we refer to as the eternal state. The fifth seal where the souls were, of, were, were hovering around the throne, the fifth seal depicts the intermediate state. This interlude depicts the eternal state obvious points of comparison to Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. I told you that in progressive parallelism, they all seem to have ends. You, you can kind of stick a tack through the right-hand side, even if they start different. You, you can. Th this end sounds a lot like the end in Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Listen, Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See that? That's the same story, a lot of the same imagery. The river, the mark on the forehead, seeing God's face, right? This is our final and eternal destination if we are in Christ. If we endure to the end, as Jesus says in Mark 13, 13, this is our salvation. This is what we are saved to. Eternal life with God and with God's people in his presence, beholding his glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post 
daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow right here for another episode of Into the Word. Before.